0: You are now listening to the February 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Brian Winston with Biblical Stewardship. During our last episode, we learned from Jesus' word that a true Christian doesn't store up wealth that exceeds one's need for oneself, but stores it in heaven. It's because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, a person who thinks of this earth has one's heart on earth and acts accordingly. During the week, where was your heart? That's the place where you stored up your treasure. At times, there are also those who believe in Jesus, but feel burdened about sharing. I especially meet those who feel burdened every time they hear the story of the early church. What kind of burden is it? They feel burdened that the early church sold their wealth and possession and shared them according to each person's need. Do you have such a burden? Do I need to sell all my possessions and share it with those in church who are in need? Must I really do such a thing? Have you ever felt this kind of burden? Let's see what the Bible says about this. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and after the apostle Peter spoke, the word, the early church, was born. We'll first read Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then verses 41 through 45. Peter replied, All of you must turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then your sins will be forgiven. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 people joined the believers that day. The believers studied what the apostles taught. They shared their lives together. They ate and prayed together. Everyone was amazed at what God was doing. They were amazed when the apostles performed many wonders and signs. All the believers were together. They shared everything they had. They sold property and other things they owned. They gave to anyone who needed something. This is the scene that causes many people to feel burdened. Some people say that the church members of that time sold all their possessions since they thought Jesus was coming soon, but now we don't need to do that. What do you think? Do you think the members should sell all their wealth just as the early church members did so the church could share everything? Or do you think it's unnecessary in the age we live in where what's mine is mine and yours is yours? The Bible doesn't tell us to do this or do that. We just have the burden of thinking we should do it. Apostle Peter first told the people to repent. Then their sins will be forgiven and they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is repenting? Repenting means changing your heart and mind. It means to turn back. Therefore, a person who truly repents has a change in value, and through that change, one's life changes as well. This is what happened in the early church from the scripture we read. They repented, their sins were forgiven through Jesus Christ, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit, so there was a change in their lives that wasn't there before. So what was that change? The believers studied what the apostles taught, They shared their lives together. They ate and prayed together. All the believers were together. They shared everything they had. They sold property and other things they owned. They gave to anyone who needed something. Do you remember the message John the Baptist gave when he first told people to repent? Anyone who has extra clothes should share with the one who has none And anyone who has extra food should do the same. This is what was happening. The Bible is not telling us to do something. It says that it will happen when we repent. After knowing who Jesus is, and after having hope in heaven, there was a change in their values towards the possessions of this earth. Verse 45 says they sold property and other things they owned they gave to anyone who needed something. This doesn't mean they immediately sold everything and gave it away. This tense in the Greek grammar means a continual and repeating act. Therefore, it means that whenever there was a need, they sold each other's wealth and possessions and served those in need. This is not the concept of non-possession from other religions. It means they used the wealth given to them to help others in need. There's a definite difference than non-possession that says, I will not own anything. I have met some people who have misinterpreted the word in Acts and feel burdened because they have mistaken that they need to sell everything and go to a place of non-possession. For those people, we will look into the next story. Acts chapter 5 records a very famous and important event. It's the story of a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, who hid the money after selling land and died. As I introduce the story of the husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, I explain that they were faced with death because they hid the money after selling the land. However, this is a wrong introduction Many people simply remember them this way. As we read Acts chapter 5 together, we'll learn what the Bible is telling us. First, we'll read verses 1-3. through A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira also sold some land. He kept part of the money for himself. Sapphira knew he had kept it. He brought the rest of it and put it down at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why did you let Satan fill your heart? He made you lie to the Holy Spirit. You have kept some of the money you received for the land. If we look at the word up to this point, we feel that Ananias is rebuked by Apostle Peter because he hid some of the money after selling the land. However, if we look at verse 4 and hear the word of Apostle Peter, We know that there is a misunderstanding in our thought. Here's verse 4. Didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, you could have used the money as you wished. What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied just to people. You've also lied to God. What is the Bible saying through the mouth of Apostle Peter? Many people have misunderstood this verse. Is it saying that Christians must sell all their possessions and bring it before the feet of the apostles? No, it's not. In fact, it's the opposite of that. This is what the Bible says. Before selling the land, the land belonged to Ananias. After selling the land for money, the money belonged to Ananias. Ananias could have used the land or money however he wanted. No one forced him to do something. However, the husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, misunderstood what they had to sell with their wealth and bring it before the apostles like the other church members. They also misunderstood that by doing that, they would receive praise by others like Barnabas did. Through this wrong motive, and misunderstanding, they lie to God and they lie to people. This is the reason why they received punishment. The Bible doesn't say that when we become Christians, we must sell all of our wealth and give it to other people. When we look at the story in Acts, it clearly tells us that what we should own or sell is solely our right. If we live under God's reign and have intimate fellowship with Him, then keeping our possession or selling it according to our thoughts is not a big problem. When we are in deep fellowship with the Lord, if He gives us the heart to sell this possession and help someone else, then we will happily do so. Christians do not need to sell all their wealth and possession and live purely in non-possession. The Lord has entrusted wealth and possession to Christians according to His will. It's a tool to be used when he tells us to use it according to his will. The early church members sold their wealth and shared with each other because the Lord gave them the heart to give to those in need and they obeyed with joy. It doesn't mean they sold everything and lived in a community of non-possession. The early church members realized that the Son of the Most High God didn't come to this earth to be served, but came to serve them, and now they began to serve others. Our Lord does not force you. He doesn't make you share against your will. It's because none of that has meaning. Your wealth and possession are under your right. The Lord wants you to use that right for Him. This concludes today's session of Biblical Stewardship. Thank you for listening.
0: next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is God Glorifying Prayers. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
2: Before we go to a time in prayer, Psalm 150 says this, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with a lute and a harp. Praise him with tambourine and brace yourself and dance. Praise him with strings and a pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Well, Father, as we come to your time in which we go into your word, Lord, we ask, God, that you would open our hearts, open our ears, God, that we may hear from you. We thank you, Father, that you have spoken so clearly, so sufficiently in your word, God, that everything we need for life, for salvation, for godliness can be found in your scriptures. So, God, make us hungry, make us passionate, God, to know your word, to know the truth, and may it transform our lives. God, we again commit our time to you, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. And I want to begin today by looking at a verse, it's Luke 6.45, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's never been a truer verse, has there? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks when your computer's not working right. You know what I'm talking about. Out of the abundance, the heart speaks, right? When the person cuts you off on the freeway. Right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whenever you get frustrated, it's such a true verse. In other words, what a person has stored up deep down in their heart will eventually manifest itself in the words that they speak. Now, one of the key ways in which people use their mouths to speak is when we find ourselves doing this, when we're praying, right? Which means that what people really value and what people really find important will be clearly manifested in the types of prayers they find themselves praying. Perhaps nothing reveals the heart of a man or a woman better than their private prayers. Think about that. I think that's so true. Nothing reveals the heart better of a man or a woman than his or her private prayers. And that means as believers, we need to take notice or inventory of the types of prayers we find ourselves praying and the types of things we find ourselves asking the Lord for and to the Lord to do. Um, and this can be a scary thing to do. It can be a very scary thing to do because we might not like the results that we find. The fact of the matter is that if we took notice of our prayers, if we took inventory of our prayers, we might find our prayers to be somewhat self-centered, somewhat self-focused and perhaps even borderline narcissistic. And I'm not kidding when I say that. I think sometimes my prayers are narcissistic. If I would record them and play them back a week later or a month later, I'd go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I prayed for that. Let's delete that tape as quickly as possible before anybody hears it. We as Christians are incredibly clever. We are a clever group. Now, the society may not think much of us, and they might not think much of our faith or think highly of us, but I know the church, and I know me, and I know that the church can be pretty clever. And here's one way that we are clever. When we pray publicly in front of other peoples, we can hide our self-centered tendencies. We're really, really good at that. And so, all of a sudden, when we pray in public, whether it's at Thanksgiving or wherever, we are all about God, His glory, His glory, Um, whatever it might be, we're totally others-focused. It's this amazing prayer. I know many of you think I pray like I pray when I'm up in the pulpit, that I go home and I'm at the dinner table with my family. All rise, let me pray. Dear Lord, your glory is what consumes us. Yeah, yeah, but this is what we do. And so when I'm asked to pray in public, you know, suddenly I become this selfless person, burdened with the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. But when I pray in private, I quickly revert back to all things me. I do. And I know if I'm doing it, I know you're probably doing it too, because we're all in the same boat together and we're all wired the same. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I, If you take inventory of your prayers and you listen to the things that you're praying for, I think more often than not, things become all about me. You know, it'd be fascinating. I think it would be a fascinating study, maybe a PhD study if you ever wanted to do it, if you ever wanted to get your PhD, is to study the private prayers of saints of former generations and compare them to the private prayers of saints today. It's, I don't know the answer to the question, um, what, would there be a difference in those prayers? Would we see a, uh, a radical difference in the nature of those prayers? Uh, it would be a fascinating study. And this re- raises a really interesting question. And here's the question for the morning. What should be the nature of the prayers of those who claim to know and love the Lord? In other words, are there certain characteristics that should govern the prayers of the saints? This is the question at hand today. And biblically speaking, folks, the answer is absolutely yes. There should be certain characteristics that would be evident in all of our prayers um, that would manifest in every single believer's private prayers. And one of the chief characteristics that we should see in every believer's private prayers is this the glory of God. The glory of God should be a chief characteristic in all of our prayers. The Westminster Confession of Faith, many of you grew up reading it. Um, you, were, you went through catechism and, they, and it was used. The Westminster Confession of Faith starts by posing this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is the answer to that question. The very first question, what is the chief end of man? The chief, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, folks, the reason that you and I exist, the primary reason that you and I exist is to glorify God. That's why you're here. If you've ever wondered, why did God create me and put me on this planet? It's very, very simple. You are here to bring glory to God. And this really shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone in this room. Why? Because the biblical writers from Genesis to Revelation were consumed with the glory of God. Psalm 1. we just sang this verse. I don't know if you realize that. Greg had us singing this verse earlier today. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. I love this. Whatever you do, God. Don't give us anything. Don't give us any glory, any praise. None of it belongs to us. It all belongs to you. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you. But to your name, give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. God, nothing belongs to us. Everything belongs to you. And chief amongst that, God, is the glory that we give. May we never give it to another man. May we never give it to ourselves. May it go to you all the time in every way. Psalm 86, 12 says, I give thanks to you, Oh, Lord, my God, with my whole heart, I will glorify your name forever. With all of my heart, all of the time, I will give glory to your name. Not just some of the time and some of my heart, all of the time with all of my heart goes to you, God, and your glory. I am consumed with your glory 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is what it's about. Not just some of my heart, some of the time, all of my heart, all of the time. This is the standard in Scripture. Psalm 72, 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. May God's glory not just consume my heart, but may it consume everyone's heart. May it fill this planet. First Timothy 1, says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and there is only one God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Are you picking up on the theme? Do you see the theme? It's everywhere in Scripture. Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. It's everywhere in Scripture. The book of Revelation says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Folks, the fact of the matter is, these few verses that I just read, these few verses that I just read, don't even constitute the tip of the iceberg. You know how we always say, well, this is the tip of the iceberg? This isn't even the tip of the iceberg. This is the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg, If we were to say that the biblical writers were consumed with one thing above all others in their writings, the glory of God would most certainly have to be on that list, the very top of that list, the glory of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the biblical writers consumed with the glory of God. The Apostle Paul himself commanded the early church to be governed by one mindset. Do you know what that mindset is? It's this. So whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, say it with me, do all to the glory of God. This is to be the mindset of saints. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whether you're awake or asleep, whether you're watching TV, playing golf, going to work, swimming in the pool, it doesn't matter. Do everything for the glory of God. Not just some of your heart, some of the time, all of your heart, all of the time. Forever and ever, amen. God gets the glory. None to us, God. None to us. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. Don't give anything to us, God. We deserve no praise. We deserve no glory. You deserve it all. Do you know what is really interesting to me? It's not just you and I who were created for the glory of God. All of creation was created to glorify God and does. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have No speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world, to the ends of the world. Listen, folks, if all of creation is proclaiming the glory of God, how much more should you and I who have been created in the image of God, redeemed by his son, glorify his name? If the stars are going to proclaim the glory of God, how much more should you and I, we are his image bearers, We have been redeemed by him. If the stars are going to proclaim his name to the ends of the earth, guess who's going to outshine those stars in giving God glory? You and me. That's our calling. It is our calling to be consumed with the glory of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not just some of my heart, some of the time, all of my heart, all of the time, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the standard in Scripture. Do you remember what happened when the Pharisees, when Jesus was uh, coming into Jerusalem, everybody started praising his name. And you remember what the Pharisees told Jesus? He said, tell your disciples to shut up. They're glorifying you too much, right? As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, these people are full on glorifying Jesus. And guess what happens? The Pharisees don't want it. They can't stand it. They, don't want, they want it to stop and they want it to stop immediately. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And understand, we say rebuke their disciples. They were furious. At this point, you can imagine them coming to Jesus and saying, you're out of line. Your disciples are out of line. Pull them in and make them stop. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would glorify me. Again, folks, if all of creation gives glory to God, how much more should you and I who have been created in his image Stones have not been created in God's image, nor redeemed by him, nor have the stars, nor have even the angels. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? The angels fly before the throne of God day and night singing "Glory, glory, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But even the angels who glorify God were not created in his image. You and I were. And if the stars proclaim his name, if the stones are going to proclaim his name, if the angels are going to proclaim his name, how much more you and me? So let's get back to the question. Are there certain characteristics that should govern the prayers of the saints? You better believe there are. And folks, the chief amongst them is this, the glory of God, is the glory of God. By the way, do you want to know one of the determining factors whether God answers prayers or not? This is, it's so simple, and I know that there's a lot of confusion um, in our prayer lives. We pray, and we pray, and we pray, and sometimes uh, God doesn't answer. Now, I'm not saying this is, I'm not, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers for other reasons than this, but I want to tell you this is one of the main reasons that God doesn't answer our prayers. God doesn't answer self-centered prayers. God doesn't answer self-centered prayers. Now, I know you know that. But that's the truth of the matter. How do I know that? Because the Bible says as much. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Rather, God answers prayers that bring glory to him. Prayers that are focused on God's glory and not our glory. God's praise and not our praise are prayers that God answers. How do I know that? Because the Bible says as much. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. When we pray prayers that are focused upon the glory of God, we can be certain that we are praying prayers that are pleasing to God and that he hears and that he is anxious and willing to answer. But the reason God isn't answering most of our prayers is because, quite honestly, and I'll just speak to myself, most of my prayers, or at least some of my prayers, are narcissistic, self-centered, self-glorifying prayers at heart. That's right. That's, that, those are my prayers. <laughs> and I know if I'm struggling with it, you're struggling with it because we're all in the same boat. And that's why I tell you guys that I struggle with these things because I, I know you, you, you sit and go, well, he's Pastor Bill. No, no, no. Pastor Bill struggles with all the same stuff you're struggling with. It's, it's, we're all in the same boat together. So I know that if I'm dealing with it, you're dealing with it too. But see, this is indicative of a much deeper problem here in America. And the problem is that a man-centered gospel is being proclaimed not only here in America, but is being exported around the world. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I want to address it again. We are preaching a gospel in America and exporting it around the world, and it is inherently self-centered at heart. It is a gospel in which man's glory, man's well-being, and man's purposes are what is most important. God exists to take care of you and to fulfill your purposes, your desires, your wants. Come to this God because he'll do that for you. Gone are the days in which we call people to come broken and contrite over their sin, beseeching God to forgive them and to restore them, and calling them to the wonderful glory that comes, the wonderful purpose that comes from bringing glory to God with their lives. Rather, in its place, we have preached a gospel in which God exists again to fulfill man's wishes and wants. In which God is put at the beck and call of mankind and not the other way around. This is what's at the heart of this. Is the gospel that I am proclaiming to others one in which God is at my beck and call or I'm, I am at his? Do you want to know what you call a God who is at the beck and call of mankind? Yeah, you call that an idol. That is an idol. And unfortunately, this is the God that is being proclaimed from many pulpits around the world that is, here's a God that exists for you. Folks, that's an idol. We exist for God. We exist for his glory. He created us that we might serve and glorify him for all eternity. What do you call a God who is at the beck and call of mankind? An idol. Do you want to know what you call a gospel in which man is the center of attention? You call that a myth. That is a myth, folks. The true gospel is one in which God is exalted and glorified by all that he has created. But especially those who have been created in his image and redeemed by his son. I don't want any rock to sing in my place. I don't want any star to glorify God more than me. Far be it that these things that God has created would glorify God more than me. But I'm afraid that there are days that that's the case. That the stars are doing a better job. The rocks are doing a better job. The plants and trees and birds are doing a better job of what I should be doing with all of my heart all of the time. Not just some of my heart, some of the time. And that is bringing glory to God. Bringing glory to God. See, it's so much easier to preach a self centered gospel than a self sacrificing gospel, a gospel in which God exists for you and not you existing for God. If you want to draw large crowds of people, if you want to brag about how many people you've led to the Lord, preach a gospel that the people love to hear, because that's how you'll get large crowds. That's how you'll be able to say, I've led a lot of people to the Lord. Tell them and preach to them a gospel in which God exists for their happiness and their glory. And their well being. Calling on people to lay down their lives, to die to self, and live every minute of their lives in service to the glory of God isn't nearly as appealing as telling people that God exists to make them healthy, happy, and wealthy. One gospel is appealing to the flesh, and the other is offensive to the senses. That's the truth. One of those gospels is appealing to the flesh and the other is offensive to the senses. And sadly, the gospel that is appealing to the flesh is seemingly the gospel that is being preached more often than not in our world today. The gospel that you win people with is the gospel that people will ultimately live out. I told you, when we call people to a God who exists to serve us and to make us happy, that is an idol and that gospel is a myth. The gospel that you win people with is the gospel people will ultimately live out. If you win people with a self-centered gospel, you're going to end up with self-centered saints. At best, you're going to end up with self-centered saints. The fact of the matter is you might not end up with saints at all. You might just, in fact, end up with a group of people who think they are saved but are not. And that is a terrible place to put people. It is a terrible place to lead people to a God that doesn't exist with a gospel that doesn't save. That is a terrible place and that's why Jesus said Matthew 7:21 Many will come to me on that day and say Lord Lord and he'll say I never knew you depart from me you didn't I didn't know you and frankly you didn't know me You might have come to a Jesus but it wasn't the Jesus proclaimed in the scriptures what we need what the church needs is self-sacrificing saints who understand that they have been created and redeemed for one overarching purpose, and that is to bring glory to God, to serve and to glorify the one true, holy, majestic, sovereign God of the universe with all of their hearts, all of the time, not just some of their hearts, some of the time. It is all of my heart, all of the time, forever and ever. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said this, I have now concentrated all of my prayers into one and that one prayer is this, that I might die to self and live holy for him. All of my prayers can be boiled down to this, God, may I die to self and live holy for you, not to me, O Lord, not to me be given anything, no glory, no praise, no credit. May you get all of it, all of the glory, all of the time with all of my heart. That is the standard. Nothing to me, all to you. Folks, when the chief end of our prayers is the exaltation of God, the glory of God, we can be confident that we are always praying according to God's will. You know, if you, if you spend time praying and you're like, I don't know if this is I'm um, praying according to the will of God, just ask yourself, is this prayer that you're praying ultimately about his glory or yours? If it's about his glory, then you can have confidence. Lord, I'm praying this is for your glory. So let's get practical for a few moments. This is where we're really going to have some fun. Are you guys still with me? I feel like I'm yelling at you today apologize about that. Sometimes you just got to yell. What are some tangible ways, and listen, this is going to be insightful for some of you. What are some tangible ways that we can truly pray for the glory of God and make the glory of God central in our prayers? Let me give you a couple. First is this, pray passionately for God to be glorified in his church, okay? Look at what Ephesians says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Amen. You see that theme again? Forever and ever. Amen. With all of my heart all the time. Amen. To him be glory in the church. Listen, folks, if God is not glorified in the church, where do you think he's going to be glorified? In the world? In other religions? In politics? It's not going to happen. The one place where God and Christ should be glorified at all times with all of our hearts is in the church. The church exists for the glory of God. Now, listen you would think that the church would cling to this reality and do everything in its power to protect this calling. But it doesn't. It doesn't. More often than not, the church looks just like the world. And we behave just like the world and we adopt worldly principles. And so God's not being glorified in society and he's not being glorified in the church. Sadly, many churches lose their way on this matter. And if you need reminding how quickly a church can lose its way, all you need to do is go to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and look at the seven churches in Asia Minor. Take Ephesus, for example. Paul spent a... Paul, The Apostle Paul personally labored tirelessly in the church at Ephesus. And yet by the end of the first century, we read these words about the church of Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You once loved God first, and his glory, and his kingdom is what drove you and what you you were passionate about. But here we are, just slightly removed from the Apostle Paul's existence. He's been murdered in Rome. Paul's gone, and the church loses its way. They've lost their first love. They now love themselves or the things of this world, or the pleasures of this world, or the luxuries of this world, whatever it might be, their love for God, giving Him glory and serving Him with all of their hearts, has been replaced by a love of other things. And I ask you, what possibly in this world deserves your love more than the Lord? You will not find it in the world, and I'm going to tell you this, you will not find it looking in the mirror. Nothing in this world, including yourself, is worthy of your love more than the Lord. Folks, if you want to pray a prayer that will have both an immediate impact and long-lasting effect, pray that God would be glorified in his church always. And I kid you not when I tell you that. Now listen, (laughs) now I'm going to step on toes, okay? So I'm going to just warn you right now. What concerns me most, and I've said this before, what concerns me most is that I see Christians who are seemingly more passionate about the health of this country than they are the health of this church. And the church. If you ever want to come and talk politics with me, I'll talk politics with you, but I'm going to tell you real quick, I'm going to take it to a discussion of the church. If you want to change and transform this country, I'm going to tell you how to do it. You do it by changing the church and praying for the church, that God would raise up a generation of godly Christians, sold out, passionate Christians, proclaiming the one true gospel, calling people to repent and turn to the one true God. This is how we will change this country. Now, don't get me wrong. Politics matter. Vote. Be involved in politics. Encourage your kids to become lawyers and politicians. Those things matter. I'm not saying they don't, but they come in a distant second to what truly matters, and that is the health of this church and the health of the church in America. The greatest thing you could do ever in support of your country, believe it or not, is the thing that you probably didn't even know when you walked in today, and that is this is ensure that the church is sold out for the Lord, on fire, fully committed to the glory of Lord all the time, all the time, with all of our hearts, all of the time, not just some of our hearts, some of the time. Folks, if you make that a prayer of your, make that a regular prayer that you would intercede for the church And that God would be glorified in his church. I'm telling you, folks, that is a prayer that God will honor. And you will make inroads. You will make an impact. And you may not ever even realize the impact that you are making with such prayers. But I guarantee you, you will rock the foundation of the church if you pray prayers like that. Secondly, pray that God would be glorified in the abundant fruit of all believers. Pray that God would be glorified in the abundant fruit of all believers. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says as much. By this, my father is glorified. How is he glorified? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Listen, so often when we pray for other believers, how do we pray for them? We pray for better health, better finances, better job. And while there's nothing wrong with praying those types of prayers, what we should really be praying for is better fruits and more fruits. Folks, the most important prayer that you can ever pray for another believer isn't financial success, physical healing, or fewer problems. It is that they would be someone who bears immense spiritual fruit in their lifetime, because that is how that person is going to truly glorify God. Now, this is a scary prayer to pray. You know why? Because in order to produce much fruit, God often has to prune the worthless branches out of a believer's life. And the pruning process isn't always fun or easy, but it is most certainly necessary. And here's the irony. So often we are praying, God, remove the problems from my son's life or my daughter's life, not realizing that God is taking those very problems and he's using those problems to prune them. He's pruning them with the problems and you're praying, God, take that away. The very thing that God is using to refine them and make them somebody more sold out and more bearing much fruit is the very thing you're praying against. Sometimes you will find yourselves praying for God to prune your own children, your own spouse, someone you love. And that's a difficult prayer to pray. Because what, what our flesh wants to do is, Lord, take the problems away from my kids. Don't give them a hard life. Not realizing that, God, you might be doing something in that hard life that is refining them and is going to cause them to produce fruit. So, God, here's my prayer. Be glorified in my son or my daughter and prune them if you have to. And God, prune me if you have to. As scary as that prayer is to pray. It's like, "Ah, I don't want to think that I have any branches that God has to take away, but I'm sure I do. So God, do your pruning. Again, don't shy away from praying this. God is glorified when his saints bear fruit, not when they don't have problems. you are glorified when they bear much fruit. Finally, and we'll finish with this. Pray that God would be glorified, listen to this, through the holy behavior of his people. 1 Corinthians says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. In your body. Ask God to purify. You want to know how to pray a prayer that God will be pleased with and that will impact and rock the foundation of this country and the church? Here's the prayer you pray. God, purify your church from all forms of idolatry sexual immorality and greed you pray that prayer right there god purify your church from idolatry sexual immorality greed and other similar worldly practices folks that's how you want you want you want this church's you want this country's dna to change Ask God to change the DNA of the church, that we'd be more holy and sanctified people, sold out for him. Listen, I'm going to mention it because it needs to be mentioned. Pornography is running rampant in this world today. We have children being put into sexual slavery all over this country, in this country, and all over the world. And it is happening because uh, sexual immorality is running rampant, and it's made massive inroads into the church. So let's pray that God, that you would purify your church, that, that we would be a people who glorify you with our bodies. What does 1 Peter 2.9 says? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. By the way, who possesses who? Do you possess God or does God possess you? Well, technically, biblically, we could say yes, both ways, I guess. But this passage, we're God's possession. You exist for God. He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him, for his own possession. Why? Why does he possess us? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why do you exist? That you might declare his excellencies to proclaim his glory to this world and to this generation. That's why you and I exist. We are a holy nation. You want to pray for the church? Pray that God would make us holy. I told you this before and I'll say it again. The church... The word church, ecclesia, means called out ones. We are the called out. We've been called out of the world. We are separate from the world, set apart from the world. And too many preachers are calling, and I said this before, too many preachers are calling people into the church without calling them out of the world. See, when you just call people into the church and not out of the world, that's not the gospel. The gospel is forsake your sin and come to Christ. Turn from your evil ways and run to the one that can save you. So again, I finished with the question today. Are there certain characteristics that should govern the prayers of the saints? You bet, folks. And chief amongst those is the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says this, and I finished with this verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Say that last word with me. Amen. Amen. I finished with this question. Is the glory of the Lord a consuming priority in your prayers? Is it? If not, let it be, folks. I guarantee you. If you want to transform your life, your prayer life, get focused on the glory of God. If you want to transform this country, get focused on praying for God to be glorified in his church and through his saints at all times and in all ways, not just with some of our hearts some of the times, but with all of our hearts, all of the time. Amen, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you again this day. And God, we think of Psalm 150. God, we praise your name. We exalt your name. We glorify you. God, not to us, not to us, Lord. Far be it that we as fallen creatures receive any glory or honor. It is all due to you and all for you. And so, God, may we be a people sold out for you in this way, giving glory to you with all of our hearts. In the privateness of your hearts right now, I want you just to spend a moment. Glorify God. Spend some time glorifying him in in your heart of hearts. Lift his name on high right now. Father, may we be a people that glorify you day in and day out. May we glorify you to our neighbors. May we glorify you to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family. Even when the world doesn't understand what we're doing, God, may we be unashamedly people who give you all the glory all the time, forever and ever, amen. And God, may our prayers reflect a heartfelt passion for your glory. Forgive us of the times, God, that we have prayed for our kingdom to come and our will to be done, for our way to be made easy and our load, God, to be made light. God, when what we should be praying, God, is that you would be glorified, even if it means us laying down our very lives for that purpose. God, may you be glorified. So, Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things to your glory and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And the church said with me, amen.
3: The moon and stars, they wept. The morning sun was dead. The Savior of the world was fallen His body on the cross His blood poured out for us The weight of every curse upon us Final breath he gave as heaven looked away. The Son of God was laid in darkness. A battle in the grave, a war on death was waged. The power of hell forever broken. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. And now, death, where is your sting? Our resurrected King has rendered you defeated. He's overcome. He's overcome Oh
2: are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.
0: Coming up next is Refining Faith.
4: Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Sharon Lee with a Refining Faith. Last time, we talked about how nothing is allowed without God's permission and cannot happen outside of His sovereignty. But as I said last time, there are a lot of us who have a difficult time acknowledging this because we think God would not allow tragic or bad things to happen to us. But our thoughts can never be above the Bible. If what we think is different from what is said in the Bible, we must shift our thoughts to coincide with the Bible instead of saying the Bible is incorrect and wrong. What I realized as I prepared for this program, Refining Faith, is that God is much grander than what my feeble mind can fathom. I'm in awe at times when I realize there are many things that I misunderstand about Him. Most of us only accept God's work and His sovereignty and give testimony when something thankful, happy, or joyful happens to us. When things that are sad, disastrous, or tragic happens, we think it's Satan that caused them to happen to us. But as we saw last time, from First Samuel chapter two, verses six and seven, God kills and makes us alive, and He brings us down to shore and raises us up. God also makes us poor and rich, and He brings us low and exalts us also. However, we think God kills, brings us down, makes us poor, or lowers us when we do something wrong. But accepting them as such. It's more like accepting God's judgment rather than acknowledging His sovereignty. Acknowledging God's sovereignty means accepting that God rules over everything. Can we really acknowledge God's sovereignty when God brings us down, makes us poor, lowers us, and even kills us, even though we haven't done anything wrong? Let's take a look at Job. Job tragically lost all of his possessions, cattle, donkeys, lambs, servants, and ten sons and daughters in the same day. But who allowed all these disasters and tragedies to happen? We know that Satan brought these disasters and tragedies upon Job. But Satan brought them upon Job with God's permission. He did not bring them on Job when God did not permit it. It says in Job chapter 1 verse 12, Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Then Job experienced all of his possessions being taken away. But instead of reacting to what Satan did by cursing God, Job confessed, that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knew about God's sovereignty regarding what happened to him, and he kneeled down before him without resentment. God allowed the hardship and tribulation, but commanded Satan not to touch Job's life, which showed that God oversaw Job's hardship and tribulation and show that He is the one who oversees all life. But as I have been saying, it is very difficult for us to accept that. That is why we sometimes have trouble understanding the book of Job. It's because we just cannot agree that God would let the hardship and tribulation happen to good people. If it is difficult to understand Job, let's take a look at Jesus. Jesus was captured and suffered by the Jews, the very people who God had chosen. Then He was hung on the cross and died. Who allowed this thing happen to Jesus? Did Satan capture Jesus and kill them? Did Jesus lose to Satan? You know that is not true. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, No one has taken it away from Me, but I lay it down on My own initiative, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. What about disciples, Stephen or Paul? Do you think they had to go through all their hard times because of Satan? Paul listed many of these tribulations that had happened to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from the latter part of verse 23 to verse 27. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Who do you think allowed all these things to happen? Do you think it's just Satan's plot to stop Jesus Christ from spreading the gospel? Please think deeply about what God's sovereignty means. Please think deeply about how all these things happened under God's sovereignty. Please think deeply about why they happened, if they happened under God's sovereignty. And please think deeply this week about what the purposes of these things would be. We will take a look at what the purposes might be next time. But I also want to end our time together with the encouraging words of Jesus from John chapter sixteen verse thirty three where he says These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have a tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Thank you for listening, Refining Faith, and I will see you next week.
5: They fail not As Thou hast been Thou forever will be Great is Thy faithfulness Great is Thy faithfulness Morning by morning New mercies I see I have needed Thy hand; hath provided. Great is Thy. Above join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy and love. Great is thy faith. Oh, no. 10,000 beside, great is thy faithfulness, great